Hey guys, um, the Bible reading can be found in the sheet of paper that you would have got on the way in. It is Acts chapter 14. And uh, yeah, I will be reading uh, Acts 14. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in uh, Lycanian, The gods have come, come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why have you done these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did... For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Father, we thank you for the privilege it always is to gather in your name. We thank you for this lunchtime that you provided for us to hear your word. And for those of us perhaps who are new to hearing your Bible, we pray that you might help us to understand the depth of what it is that you have to say. We pray that in your mercy we might all respond appropriately. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. 
the sense of smell is apparently considered to be the sense that is most closely attached to your emotions. Did you know that? Incredible, isn't it? Small wonder it's the basis of so-called aromatherapy. How does the aroma of coffee make you feel? Real question. Love some answers. How does it make you feel, the aroma of coffee? Anybody? Alive. Alive. <laughs> I've got that here and we didn't even talk about it. Alive. Yeah. Any other feelings that evokes? Warmth. Warmth. Disgust. <laughs> disgust with someone else. That's quite amazing. Alive and disgust. Uh, there you go. Uh, elated. Now, hands up if you know what a durian is. Hands up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's a picture of, of durian. Now, if you don't know what it is, it is the king of fruit in Southeast Asia. It's actually described as the king of fruit. Right. And you'll see that it's got this thorn-like husk, and the flesh inside is this strange combination of savoury and sweet and creamy all at one time. <laughs> to many in Southeast Asia, it has the smell of life. But to most of the world, it has a smell of death. Just like coffee is to Adam, I understand. This notorious Asian fruit is the only fruit, wait for it, legally banned in hotels, in public transport, and in airlines. It is actually banned. Why is that? A food writer by the name of Richard Sterling wrote, its odour is best described as turpentine and onions garnished with a gym sock. <laughs> it can be smelled metres away. And to actually quote someone else, it tastes like heaven, but it smells like hell. That's what you've got with durian. Now, the Apostle Paul described his own ministry like durian. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, a fragrance of life to life. You see, wherever Paul went with the momentous news of Jesus, he went with the aroma of Christ, which was the smell of life to some and the smell of death to others. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in his missionary journeys, the first of which we are actually exploring the passage that was just read out for us in the book of Acts. Now, if this is your first time with us, we're working through a part of the Bible known as the book of Acts. And this story of Acts has as its major theme, the bedrock, the, the backbone theme of the book of Acts is that in God's timing, Jesus will establish his rule from heaven as king over all the nations. Right? In God's timing, Jesus will establish his rule from heaven as king over all the nations. And the fellow who we were talking about, especially a fellow named Paul, was sent together with Barnabas from the church in Antioch, in ancient Syria, to proclaim this momentous news to the nations. So we've got a map up here that we began with last week, you might recall. This Antioch in Syria... So there's this very place that is there. That church sends Paul and Barnabas, and you follow the red brick road, 
right, all the way through the, the red line, and they went through Cyprus, and that's what we looked at last week, uh, through that island from Salamis to Paphos, and then we traced their journey last week in Acts chapter 13 to Antioch in the top left there, a second Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, you might recall. And this week, in Acts 14, we see how they go to Iconium, and then to Lystra, and then to Derby, and then kind of make their way back home again. Alright, so that's where Acts 14, it's the last three red dots, and then their trip back. Alright, that's what we're covering in Acts chapter 14. Now, the first thing we're going to look at, though, is the aroma in Iconium. Right, Iconium, that's where we're going to now. What was the aroma in Iconium? Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1, that small number 1 in that slab of scripture that is before you. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Can you see how they were the aroma of Christ in Iconium? They were the fragrance of life to a great number, it says there. Not just a few, a great number of Jews and Greeks who believe their message that Jesus is Lord of all, all the nations. But there is a verse I want to point out to you coming up on the screen. In Acts 13, right, just before, it actually says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Appointed by whom? It is appointed by God. The point I want to make is that it is God who appoints people to believe. God is the one who controls our hearts. God is the one who brings things about. And he uses the faithful preaching of the gospel to bring people to believe. But he also uses the very same message to make Paul and Barnabas the fragrance of death to the other unbelieving Jews who poison the minds of others against them. So there's a great many who believe, but then there's a whole group who oppose him because others had poisoned their minds. So what does Paul and Barnabas do in the face of opposition? Yes, it's lots of people who believe, but there are a whole stack of people who are now opposing them. What do Paul and Barnabas do in the face of opposition? Look at the small number three, verse three. So they remained for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Imagine that. They stayed for a long time. If I was Paul or Barnabas, I'd probably go somewhere else immediately in the face of persecution. But they hang around in the face of persecution. They hang around so that they can speak boldly for the Lord. And the Lord himself bore witness to their word, granting them signs and wonders to testify to the gospel's authenticity and power. But neither miracles nor persuasive argument can bring about conversion. It is God who appoints people to eternal life through the proclamation of the gospel. God brings it about. He changes their hearts through the proclamation of his message. And the aroma that they produce, the aroma well, continue to divide people. And so if you look at the small number 4, verse 4, it says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, then they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued 
to preach the gospel. Right? Even at risk of their own lives, Paul and Barnabas continued to preach the gospel. Yeah, they learned that they were going to be stoned to death, so they went elsewhere to continue to preach the gospel. And so they go to the next place in, map again, they go from Iconium down south to Lystra. Right? Lystra is now where we're looking at now, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, in Lystra. What is the aroma in Lystra? Well, firstly, we learn that they go to a place where there is unlikely to have been a synagogue because they don't mention a synagogue at all. In all the other places, they go to the synagogues first, but here there's no mention of one. So it's likely that what they're going to is an unreached people group, a people who've never heard of Jesus, a people who've never heard of the history of Israel. And there they heal a man who was crippled from birth, just like the Apostle Peter healed a crippled man back in Jerusalem in chapter 3. So we're meant to have allusions back there. And look at how the people responded. Look at the small number, 11. After they see Paul and Barnabas heal this crippled man, verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, let's take stock here. The scholars say that there was a legend in Lystra that Zeus and Hermes, right, the leader of the Greek god, that's Zeus, Hermes is meant to be the speaker, and if you've watched any of those movies, you'll know who these guys are in terms of these Greek gods. Well, the legend was that Zeus and Hermes had come before, before Paul and Barnabas came this time, they'd come before in history, disguised as mortals, and were welcomed by an elderly couple who became their priests. But these gods then destroyed the homes of those who did not receive them. Right? That was the legend before. So here, the crowds, apparently moved by this legend, assume that Zeus and Hermes had returned again, this time disguised as Barnabas and Paul. And that's why they prepared sacrifices for them. Now, just a cue. You might recall back in chapter uh, 11, I think it is, when King Herod was treated like a god. Oh, it's actually back in chapter 12. Herod was treated like a god. Do you remember how Herod responded when he was treated like a god? If you were here, you might recall that Herod, he lapped it up. He didn't deny that he was a god. And so what did God do to Herod? Does anybody remember? What did God do to Herod? He struck him down, dead, and he was eaten by worms. That's what we were told in chapter 12 of Herod. Don't worry, we'll all get eaten by worms as well in the grave one day. What does Paul and Barnabas do here when they started to be treated like gods? Look at verse 14, this small number 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men or of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You see what they do? Paul and Barnabas, they start ripping off their clothes and they rush into the crowd. Why do they rip off their clothes? Because they think they're hot? Break out in a sweat? <laughs> uh, is it because you know they think they've got a six-pack that they want to reveal? You know, rip? And is it because they want to show off their Calvin Klein underwear? I mean, what is it that they want to show off to people? No. They wanted to show that they were mortals. They wanted to show that they were humans, just like the people who were making sacrifices to them. They say, I've got flesh and blood like you, O oh mortals. I'm a fellow mortal. Don't sacrifice to me. I'm not a god. I'm just like you. That's what they wanted to show, right? And furthermore, as they rush into the crowd, tearing their clothes, they said they had good news to proclaim, verse 15. Right? Good news. Now, the word for good news is the word gospel in the original. Have a read of verse 15 on your own for a moment now. What was the good news? Okay, given that we're university students, I think you've had time to read verse 15. Now turn to the person next to you and say hello if you haven't. My name is such and such. And then say, what was the good news that we just read about in verse 15? What was the good news? Go for it. Over here, this half of the room, what was the good news? Turn away from fickle things and turn to the living God. Turn away from fickle things and turn to the living God. Yeah, did anybody have anything different there? Anybody want to add to that? Subtract from that? No, that's, that's pretty much right, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's comprehension, isn't it? I, I hope you can see that. It's just, I just wanted you to look clearly at the text. That's just what it says. It's, should turn from vain things, futile things, worthless things, to the living God. But what do we know about the living God in that verse? 
this side can answer this one. Simple, straightforward comprehension. What do we know about the living God? What has the living God done? Made heaven and earth and sea. Yeah. And everything in it. He's the maker, right? So turn from vain things, useless things, to the true God of heaven and earth who made everything, to the creator. Right? That's the good news, right? There is a true and living God. And he really did create heaven and earth and everything that is in them. Just as an aside, please remember that he's speaking to people who have never heard about Jesus. They're an unreached people group. They know nothing about Israel and the history of Israel or Old Testament understanding and prophecies, which is what we looked at last week in Acts 13 when, when Paul went to the synagogue. He rehearsed all the history of Israel. Remember here, he doesn't do anything of the kind. He just says, turn away from these vain things to the true and living God because we want to get back to the very foundational thought that there is a God who made us. Anything who is not the God who made us is a counterfeit God like Zeus and Hermes. The good news is that there is a true and living God who really did create heaven and earth and everything in them. Every species of bird in the heavens. Magpies, cockatoos, silver-eyed, carawong, crested pigeons, ravens, eagles, bell miners, butcher birds. He created all those things in the heavens and in the seas. He created barramundi, murray, tuna, swordfish, golden perch, flower crab, yabby, trout, white, dory, everything. And he kept on going. Everything in the heavens, everything in the seas and everything in between. Animal, vegetable, mineral and humanity. Heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them he created. Now, why is that important? What's the implication? That if there is a creator, that means that we were created. And we who are created have meaning. Because if you weren't created, you don't have meaning, do you? University slogan is, together, find your why. You cannot find your why unless there is a creator. If there is no creator, there is no why, is there? If there is no creator, then we just exist because we exist because we exist because we exist. There's no meaning, there's no purpose. You're just atoms that are moving in a particular direction in a different way to the chair, which are atoms moving in a different direction. So if I cut through Alana's head and, and cut through the chair, it doesn't really matter. It's <laughs> just atoms. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. One might sprout blood, the other one doesn't, but who cares? There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's just... There's, there's no... She wasn't created for a purpose. The chair, but she was. The chair was created for a purpose to be sat on. I know people will use it for other things, <laughs> but it's created for a purpose. If you are created, you are created for a purpose. And what is that purpose? We are created for the Creator. Our purpose in life is to exist for the one who made us, the true and living God. Do you know, even social researchers get this vibe, even, even if they're not Christian. He's an American psychologist. So those of you studying psychology, listen really closely. 
those of you who are not psychologists, listen really closely as well. <laughs> Martin Seligman is his name. He concluded that faith in something larger than the self is the one absolutely essential prerequisite for a sense of meaning in life. And the larger the entity, the more meaning people derive from it. For most of human history, and for most people living on the planet today, the god of religion has supplied that something greater. Hugh Mackay, the Australian social researcher, says, in our ungodly era, the vacuum created by the absence of religion must be filled by something else. And he's absolutely right, right? Our psychology makeup, our psychological makeup rather, demands it. Our meaning is determined by faith in something that is larger than ourselves, and we look to that something somewhere for meaning. Even so-called existentialists who say there is no God, well, they create meaning against all the facts. They say, I, I know it's not true, but I'm just going to create it in order to have meaning in life. But if this vacuum is filled by anything other than the true and living God who created everything, then that's vain, that's fickle, that's futile, that's worthless, and that is dangerous. Because they're counterfeit gods in the end. Another non-Christian man, David Foster Wallace. Hands up if anybody has heard of David Foster Wallace. At least one human being who was created for the purpose of God and answering this question in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> David Foster Wallace was an award-winning novelist known around the world for his boundary-pushing storytelling, I'm told. A few years before he died, he gave a famous speech at Kenyon College in the United States, where I think he had some association with, whether he graduated from there, I'm not entirely sure. But he said at this ceremony to the graduating class these words, I quote, Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if you are where uh, sorry, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough money. Never feel you feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, need, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious things about the forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. It's so true. And I want to ask you, I guess, here, whether you claim to be Christian or not, whether you're regular at this meeting or a church or not, whether you are an atheist, what do you worship? Because we all worship something. A Christian author, preacher, well-known guy named Tim Keller has written very helpfully on this, and he once wrote, How do you identify these idols 
these counterfeit gods, one way is to look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Just think about that. When have you felt like your emotions have been uncontrolled? That those tears just come out of nowhere, or that anger just comes out of somewhere, or that elation, coffee, whatever it is. Those uncontrollable emotions, right? Look for your idols at the bottom of painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and drive you to do things you know are wrong. If you are angry, ask, is there something here too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have at all costs? Because that's why I'm angry. What's the thing that I have to have at all costs? Being in the right? Being seen to be in the right? My reputation? Do the same thing about strong fear or despair or guilt. Ask yourself, am I so scared because something is being threatened which I think is a necessity when it is actually not a necessity? Now, is that where I'm scared feel like I'm going to be found out threatened? Or am I so down on myself because I've lost or failed at something which I think is a necessity when it's not? Failing an exam. Is that the end of the world? Well, in certain parts of this world, people commit suicide because they don't get the best marks. What about if I'm overworking, driving myself into the ground with frantic activity? Well, ask myself, do I feel that I must have this thing to be fulfilled or significant? Whatever it is that I'm frantically working at. See, when you ask questions like that, when you pull your emotions up by the roots, as it were, sometimes you will find your idols clinging to them. So what is the idol for you that's clinging to these uncontrolled emotions that you can analyse in your life? Is it reputation? Is it a certain person? You can't do without. Is it a desire for more things, or, or whatever it is. If it is not the true and living God, then it's an idol. And it'll eat you alive. The good news is can turn from these vain things to the true and living God who made heaven and earth the living God who really is God who really is your saviour
And I'm sure that if Paul had time or the opportunity to explain to the people in Lystra as he was ripping off his clothes to go into the crowd to share these things, that this true and living God raised Jesus to be the Lord of the nations. But he didn't get to that point because he didn't have the opportunity. In fact, in verse 18, or small number 18, you know, it says, Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Can you imagine that? The crowds... At one point they were worshipping Paul and Barnabas, but then when their minds are poisoned by Jews who came from other towns, the same crowd who wanted to worship them now wanted to waste them. They started stoning them to kill them. Why? Because the Jews who opposed them back in Iconium, in the city that they came from, travelled, wait for it, 160 kilometers by foot, by foot, in order to persuade the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. They were so angry with Paul and Barnabas for proclaiming that there is a true and living God. Why? What makes them so angry? Because that means that the true and living God is greater than any idol that you are worshipping. And that gets people really angry. As an aside, I can recall I was with uh, my family travelling. This is quite a number of years ago when my four children were quite little. Right? They were in their baby capsules and their seats and, and all that sort of stuff. And I remember turning right across a lane where there was an oncoming truck. And it was my fault. I went a bit too early and he had to beat his horn and I just I tried to apologise as best I could, just waving and went and smiled and just feeling really just kind of trembling at the thought that I could have been killed. But anyhow, I just drove up the next set of lights and so on. And lo and behold, I just discovered that this truckie had gone down the ferry, it somehow made a U-turn and followed me all the way back to the next set of traffic lights that I could get to and got right next to me and he looked at me. It could feel like he was going to explode. Right? He looked at me and he said, you're lucky you've got your kids with you because I would, I won't say the rest. How angry is that? He turned a truck around to try and catch me. That's kind of what the Jews do. They're so angry. They're willing to go 160 kilometres filled with rage. I don't know what the case was with this truckie, but for these guys, because their way of life was being threatened because Paul was challenging what they were worshipping in their Jewish religion and here in the so-called pagan religion to say there is a true and living God. So what do they do? They stone Paul until they thought he was dead. And what does Paul do? Look at verse 20, the small number 20. But when the disciples gathered about Paul, thinking he was dead, he rose up. And what did he do? He entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. 
Firstly, he went back to the very city where the people stoned him. And only on the next day did he go to Derby and preach the good news. Then look what they did. Here's the verses. It's not on your sheet because I couldn't fit it in. When they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, and had many more, that's in Derby. they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch and others. They made their way back, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That is, many are brought to faith in all these places they go to so that churches end up being planted and patterns of leadership are established over this whole area where elders are appointed. And this area where the churches are planted is called Galatia in the end. And it's just possible that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to these very churches that he visited in this first missionary journey. Please note the pattern of church planting here is found in the primacy of evangelism. You plant churches not by transfer growth from other churches. You plant churches on evangelism. Paul went around evangelizing. Paul went around sharing the good news of Jesus with people so that people became Christians. On his way back, boop, the churches came, were there. So he appointed elders on the way back. Do you see? It's found in the primacy of evangelism. Evangelism is the key to church planting not transfer growth from other churches. And it will involve suffering for the believers. Right? Through many tribulations, we're told, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, go back to the map here. See, he goes from Iconium to Lystra to Derby, and then they go back and they see these churches that are planted and appoint elders in each of those places, in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch. They go down to Perga, they evangelize more there. They go off to Italia, onto the left there, slight you know, dog leg to the left there, and then they sail back to Antioch eventually. So they just do the loop. This is Paul's first missionary journey, right? Acts 13 and 14. Helpful to have that in your brain, Acts 13 and 14, because so many of the letters will refer to this time. In fact, in the next slide, in 2 Timothy, Paul has an autobiography. Right, 2 Timothy, his very last letter, he has an autobiography in chapter 3. He says to Timothy, his young protege, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened. Where? Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. See, that's Acts 13, 14. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all... The Lord rescued him. He saw Jesus as his rescuer. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, no, will be persecuted. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian who seeks to live a godly life, you don't have to go on a missionary journey like Paul in the first century. You just have to live a life that is God-like, a life that represents the true God of heaven and earth. You have to live a life that has meaning and purpose, which is to exist for God who sent His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be persecuted. 
not may be persecuted, not might be persecuted, but will be persecuted. So I want to ask you, are you prepared to be persecuted? Because, you see, one way to avoid it is to stop living for Jesus. You live for Jesus, people won't like it. It's part and parcel of living a godly life in Christ Jesus. For like the apostles, we will be the aroma of Christ if we live gladly for Jesus and proclaim the best news in all the world. That in God's timing, Jesus will establish his role from heaven, his rule from heaven rather, as king over all the nations. Now, as we conclude, we realise that after being away for about 200 kilometres in their journey, Paul and Barnabas are back home in Antioch, as we saw in the map. Their first missionary journey is complete. And in many ways, the trip has been a victory parade for the risen Christ. In city after city after city, Paul and Barnabas proclaim the greatness of Jesus, the victory that he has over death. And along the way, the risen Christ has also displayed his power and authority. Sorcerers are struck with blindness. Cripples are healed. And Paul receives strength to go on even after being stoned Hearts of both Jews and Gentiles are stirred, lives are changed, and the risen Christ broadcasts his greatness, reflecting the reality that he is at the centre of everything that God has ever planned. And this news will always remain the aroma of Christ. A fragrance of life to some, a fragrance or stench of death to others until he returns to judge the living and the dead. And may you be fragrant for Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, that Jesus is Lord. And we pray that you'll help us to live gladly for him as the aroma of Christ. Amen. Amen. I think someone else is going to leave some prayers. Someone else is. Well, hello, everyone. My name is David. I'm a third year maths ed student. And I'm going to continue praying to the same living God that we were just looking at. So please join with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you so much that you have created everything and uh, that you continually provide for us. Uh, I pray that uh, you help us to. Uh, remove our idols, whether they're uh, money, work, being right, having fun, relationship, comfort, or any other things. Um, I pray that you help us uh, to live for uh, your purpose instead. Um, I also uh, thank you that uh, you are with us uh, in, our hard, in the hard times that we face, in our persecutions. Um, and I pray that uh, you'll strengthen our trust in you, um, especially when our times can change so quickly like they did for Paul and Barnabas. Um, I also pray uh, for the um, Explore Christianity courses that are being run. I uh, thank you that there are several people who are going along to those. Um, I pray for the Christians that are going along, um, who are wanting to learn how to teach uh, people about 
Christianity who haven't heard about it before. And I also pray for the people who are going along who are hearing Christianity for the first time. And I pray that uh, you work, that you will work in their hearts and um, that they will come to an understanding of you and uh, put their trust in you as well. I pray for um, and evangelism on campus. I thank you that uh, you use us um, as imperfect as we are to do your work. Um, and I pray that uh, you help us to take up opportunities to tell people about you. Um, and I pray you help us to be welcoming to people who come to the talks or focus or any of the events that the Bible group runs. I pray you help us to um, make good connections with uh, non-Christians so that they can um, learn about you. And I pray you'll be with us in that. And I also pray for the Coven Christian Union at Perth. I pray that you'll uh, help them as well as they need to spread your word. And I pray to help them to be bold when speaking to friends. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Amen.